Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, he wrote in there that there were three inalienable rights that all people had, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's these three inalienable rights that have come to define for us the American dream. What over the course of the generations that has taken many different shapes for many different people. In 1849, there was the the gold rush and people were flooding into the state of California for what? For life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There have been generations that have went to Alaska to settle the last frontier and to have their own homestead. Why? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why today do we have our our children throwing year round until their arms fall off? It is so that they can get the scholarship that we think they need, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why does the average American have over $8,000 in credit card debt? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you see, the, the American dream is far more simple than home ownership, or homesteads, or material possessions. In fact, it can be simplified so simply as to say that it is simply to have joy and not to have worry. The American dream is to have joy and to not have worry. That's why we buy. That's why we push our kids towards scholarships. That's why we settle in new places. That's why we buy houses that are beyond our means. That's why we drive cars that are status symbols. That's why we don't want to worry anymore. We want to feel good. We want to have joy. We want to be happy. But do you know what we found out? That you can have the perfect family and still be miserable. You can have a savings account and still feel insecure. You can have the right 401k and still feel as though your life is totally spinning out of control. Pursue those things as we might, work toward those things as we might, labor and sacrifice and plug away as we might. And what we find is that this pursuit of happiness keeps coming up dry. This morning, what we're going to see is Paul. Paul's going to talk about how it is in our lives we can live lives of rejoicing, how it is in our lives that we can live lives that are free from anxiety, how it is in our lives that we can have true and abiding peace. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 2. When you get there, would you stand with me? As we read God's word together. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. It says, I entreat Iwada. I practiced this so hard. (laughs) So hard. And then my brain just locked up right there. I'm ready. (laughs) I I entreat Ewadia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. You'll notice the way that Paul frames this up for us. Once in verse seven, and then again in verse nine, he frames this up in the context of peace. In other words, all that he is saying is aimed and targeted at peace. He says in verse seven, he describes it as a peace that surpasses all understanding. Your, your translation might say that it transcends understanding. That is, it is beyond our ability to explain. It is beyond our ability to articulate. It is a peace that you know, even if it is a peace that you can't describe. And he is saying that in Christ, in Christ, there is a peace that is so great, a peace that is so transformative, a peace that is so holistic that it can't even be articulated in the human vocabulary. In verse nine, he goes on and he takes it a step further. In verse seven, it is the peace of God in you. In verse nine, it is the God of peace with you. That the very source of this peace, the very, the very giver of this peace, the very enjoyer of this peace, not only will he give you his peace, he will give you himself. He will give you a lifetime supply. The fountain of peace will travel with you so that as much peace as you need, as much peace as you require, as much peace as you long for, because the giver of peace is with you, you can be certain that it will always be there. But what may strike us as odd is the way that he frames it up. The way that he frames it up. Most of us have in our, our understanding that Christianity has a relationship with peace. Like we have some understanding of that, but what we may not understand is the way that he frames it up. He leads up to this with commands. He leads up to this with these imperative statements, with these exhortations. In other words, he's leading up to the promises of peace with conditions for peace. That this peace is available to us in Christ, but for even, even for those of us who are in Christ, it is not automatic for us. It is available, but it is not automatic. That it is possible for a person to know Christ. It is possible for a person to be justified in their sin. It is possible for a person to have been baptized and still not be at peace. I bet you know this already. It is possible for you to not have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It is possible for you to feel like the fountain of peace is not in your life because, because this peace is conditional. Verse 9, he even goes so far as to say, practice these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you see the conditional statement there? Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so this morning, what I want us to see is I want us to see the conditions of peace that we might enjoy this peace, that we might know this peace and walk in this peace and love this peace. You see, the peace he's talking about is not just an inward feeling. He's talking about peace in our relationships. He's talking about the shalom peace of God, the type of peace that 
that overruns and superintends every, every arena of your life. Peace within your marriage. Peace within your, your material substances. Peace within your relationships. Peace within your emotions. Peace that encompasses an atmosphere that encompasses all of your life. So the first condition that I think that we see that he gives to us that we might enjoy a peace like that is that we must unite in passion. We must unite in passion. That if we are to have a peace that transcends all understanding, we must unite with one another together in passion. Now, I want you to imagine, go all the way back to the first century. The way that this would have been done, Philippians was a friendship letter written by Paul to the church at Philippi. And the way that this would have been done is all of the people of Philippi would have gathered around as the letter was going to be read. And Paul would have, or, or uh, the, the messenger would have been there to Epaphroditus to read it. And all of the people would have been hanging on every word of Paul. This is their apostle. This is the one that they had reached out to. This is the one that they had awaited his word. And now it was finally here. And you're there and you're here and Paul is addressing you and he's telling you how much he cares about you and he's encouraging you and he's challenging you and he's saying to, to be of one mind and be united. He's, he's reminding you that this is not the end. There is a, a greater day coming, a day of ultimate and final peace coming. And then he gets to chapter four. He gets to chapter four and he calls people out by name. Imagine being Ewodia there and imagine being Syntyche there and you're hearing Paul write and saying, look, I'm entreating you. I am urging you. I am demanding you get along with each other. Get along with each other. Whatever the spat is, whatever this disagreement is, whatever this division is, you guys need to figure it out. Can you just imagine being there? Wouldn't you just want to kind of fade into the background, Right? You ever been with somebody at the, at the restaurant and they're just really hard on the waiter? You know, like they're just really hard on the waiter. All you want to do is eat some catfish, right? Like you just want to go out, have some friendly catfish, go back to work and do your, and this person is just emasculating. And what do you want? You just want to climb under the table, don't you? You just want to climb under the table. That, that's got to be the way that they felt. They just want to climb under the table. They want to fade back into the crowd because here is Paul, the words that they've been waiting for, and he is calling them out publicly before the whole congregation. A disagreement. They, these were apparently great leaders in the church. We know that the church at Philippi had particularly some strong female leaders in the life of the church. It was founded through the winning and baptizing of Lydia and her church, as we see in Acts chapter 16. And here we have Elodia and Syntyche, and they are, they are leaders in the gospel. Think of how Paul describes them. Think of how Paul describes them. You would think that maybe he would have harsh words, stern words. You would think, knowing the way that Paul talks sometimes, that he might even say, figure it out or go to hell, right? Like, like figure it out or you can be certain that, that you are condemned and you do not know Christ and that, that you are knocking down the doors of wrath that will come upon you and you will be smote, right? That's not what Paul says, is it? Paul says, these are my sisters in the Lord. These are my co-laborers in Christ I know who they are. I've seen their commitment to the gospel. I've seen their commitment to the kingdom. 
I have served alongside them and they have served alongside me. I have watched as they themselves have worked in partnership with one another. I know, this is the only time in all of the New Testament that Paul uses this phrase. He says, I know their names are in the book of life. I know by the fruit that I have seen that they take seriously the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know by the fruit that I have seen that they love God and they love the kingdom of God and they they are in the kingdom of God. I know, in other words, that these are sisters in the Lord and though they're disagreeing over the advancement of the gospel or they're disagreeing over a particular doctrine in the gospel, I know who they are and I want them to agree because the stakes are so very high. You know, herein lies a paradox that we find in the church. These are Christian women. These are devout women. These are serious women. And yet they are bringing pain into each other's lives. They are bringing pain into the life of the church. They are bringing division into the life of the church. See, the paradox of the church is that the church is a source of joy for Christians and the church is a source of pain for Christians. The church is a source of joy for Christians and the church is a source of pain for Christians. You see, we are all saints that still sin. We have already been made righteous in the eyes of Christ by the work of Christ, but the remnant of the flesh and the remnant of sin still exists and dwells within us. We still have great capacity for evil, even though, even though through the spirit of God in us now, now we have even greater capacity for good. And so the church at times will wound us and the church at times will introduce pain into our lives that we otherwise wouldn't know while at the same time being the source of great joy. So Ewadia and Syntyche are called back to what he had written all the way back in chapter two. Remember what Paul wrote in chapter two? He says, he told us that we were to be of one mind. And what he tells the two ladies here is the very same thing. It's the same exact word, in fact, just translated into a different uh, different English phrase. But he says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Be of one mind. Be of the same mind. Be of the same concentration. Be of the same focus. Be of the same central passion in your life. What Paul was not telling them is that they had to have the same opinion. Isn't that fascinating? See, see, I think a lot of the time in the life of the church, the way that we think of unity is that we equate unity with uniformity. We equate unity with uniformity. That all of us have to have the same opinions about all of the same things or all of us are in some way wrong and at odds with each other. That's not at all what Paul's talking about here. In fact, Paul is talking to a church, some of which were Jewish, most of which were Gentile, who had completely different worldviews, who had completely different existences, who had completely different backgrounds, completely different experiences. And he's calling all of them to come together and saying, look, look, put down those opinions, put down those preferences, put down those things that are insignificant in the Lord and instead agree in the Lord, be of one mind in the Lord. See, unity isn't always sharing the same opinion. Unity is sharing the same passion. 
Unity isn't always sharing the same opinion. Unity is sharing the same passion. In fact, I think in churches, when we comment, we say we all must be uniform in our politics and uniform in our issues of the, of the conscience and uniform in our views of, of secondary doctrine. I think what we get is not true unity, but an artificial imposter behind which division always lies. But instead, if we can say, I'm not worried about those things that are secondary. I'm not worried about those things that are temporary. I'm not worried about those things where the Bible is silent. Instead, what I'm worried about is Christ Jesus, that my singular passion in life is that Christ is glorified. My singular passion in life is that the kingdom advances. My singular passion in life is that I love one another well as Christ has loved us, that my singular passion is that I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. That my singular passion is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the advancement of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so now we come together, hundreds of us under one roof, not worried about these secondary things, not worried about these temporary opinions, but rather, rather with one mind, we agree in the Lord that the main thing is the kingdom. The main thing is the gospel. The main thing is Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. That the main thing is the gospel. See, disagreement is an opportunity. Disagreement is an opportunity. Disagreement is an opportunity to show the strength of the gospel. Disagreement is an opportunity to show the strength of the gospel. Disagreement provides us with an opportunity to live out the very grace that Jesus showed to us. That we're able to agree in the Lord that the kingdom is greater than our differences and the kingdom is greater than our disagreements. It's an opportunity for us to testify to the Lord that we are living for someone greater than me. Whenever my opinion divides me from you in a temporary opinion or, or a meaningless thought or a secondary issue, when my opinion divides me from you, I have shown that Jesus is insufficient for the task. I have shown that Jesus is not good enough to do what he said he would do, and that is to hold the church together in an unstoppable form upon which the gates of hell would not prevail. But when you and I can overcome the differences of our past, when you and I can overcome the differences of our perspective, when you and I can overcome these petty, temporary disagreements, when we can put to death our preferences, what we are doing is we are drawing away from ourselves and drawing near to the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, every believer in Christ is unified. You see, it is the gospel that brought us all together to begin with. And brothers and sisters, it is the very same gospel that will hold us together from now and from forever and ever. Amen. You know what? I don't want, I don't want us all to think the same way. I think that'd be pretty lame. I, like, I don't want us all here to have all of the same opinions. I don't want us all here to have the very same preferences. I think that's boring and dull if all of us become a bunch of mindless robots parroting what we've heard the pastor say or parroting what our teacher has said or parroting what our buddy thinks, then man, we just, we've just become something less than the glory of the gospel. No, what's beautiful, what's beautiful is that when we can have different, different opinions about politics, different opinions about homeschooling, 
Different opinions about Santa and Halloween. Different opinions about secondary doctrines. And still come together with a common passion for the glory of Jesus Christ and say, that's my brother. That's my sister. And we are bound together by something that is greater than our political agenda. We are bound together by something that is far greater than our own preferences. No, I'm going to count them more significant than I count myself. I am going to put their interests ahead of my interests. And I'm going to treasure, focus, obsess over the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are going to do the same. And we are going to press on for the glory of God. This morning, I wonder with whom you need to reconcile. I wonder with whom you need to reconcile to experience the full joy that Christ has made available to you. This morning, I wonder with whom you need to agree to disagree so that you can join together in a common passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. I wonder what preferences you need to lay down. I wonder what temporary opinions are taking too high of a, of a place in your life that are distracting you from being of one mind, a mind that is locked in on God's kingdom. Because I can promise you, it's costing you joy and it's costing you peace. It's costing you peace. Peace in your relationship with your brother. Peace inside of your church. Peace inside of you. So what do you need to lay down this morning? The second condition that we see here, given that we might have peace, is that we are to rejoice through anything. We are to rejoice through anything. Beginning in verse four, let's see what it says. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with the thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, 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 if those conditions are met, if you are rejoicing always, if you are not anxious about anything, if you are letting your reasonableness be known to everyone, if you are, are by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God, and then, 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 the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it's yours. It's yours. If those conditions are met in your life, you receive the promise. You receive the promise, the promise purchased by Christ, the promise applied by the Spirit. You receive that. So I want to, I want to think about that. You'll see the way that this is structured, that there's these, these two big exhortations. There's these two big commandments, these, these two big imperatives. Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. And both of those are followed by these elaborations, right? These, 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 these explanations, these let your statements, right? Like rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So connected to that, an elaboration of that is, so let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not worry about anything, but rather, but rather let your requests be made known to God. It's the elaboration, right? It's the application of what he's just said. So first he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And the word that jumps out to me there is the word always, right? All of us have times in our lives when we rejoice. Man, Alabama wins and I rejoice, right? Bo Nix throws an interception and I rejoice and that's bad, right? That's sad, that is bad. I, I get a, a perfectly cooked steak, medium rare, the way God intended and I rejoice. 
I feel good when I wake up in the morning and I rejoice. Rejoicing is not the problem. It's rejoicing always that's hard, isn't it? It's rejoicing always. It's when they burn my steak. It's when Bama actually goes down, right? It's when I wake up in the morning and I don't feel well. It's when things in my marriage aren't going well. And yet he, here he is and he says, rejoice in the Lord always that we are in other words to have this open-ended, unbridled, unmitigated joy in our lives as Christians. That we are to be constantly in a state of gratitude, constantly in a state of joy, constantly in a state of rejoicing regardless of what our circumstances might say. That when you have plenty of money, rejoice always. When you don't have enough to make ends meet, rejoice in the Lord. When you feel good, rejoice in the Lord. When your health fails, rejoice in the Lord. When you're pregnant, rejoice in the Lord. When you can't get pregnant, rejoice in the Lord. When your marriage is rock solid, rejoice in the Lord. When it feels like it's spinning out of control, rejoice in the Lord. When you're in an exciting relationship, rejoice in the Lord. When it feels like nobody will love you and nobody will receive you, rejoice in the Lord. When your career is on the ascent, rejoice in the Lord. When your career is falling out from under you, rejoice in the Lord. Then in verse six, he gives us the negative, right? The negative commandments. It's, it's the same exact thought, just a different side of the coin. If in verse four, when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, it's the positive command, we come to verse six and it is the negative command of the same premise. Do not be anxious about anything. Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. You see, in the definitions of the scripture, anxiety is the opposite of joy. Anxiety is the opposite of joy. That anxiety leads to dismay and despair where joy is hope, contentment, and peace. And so this command, this command not to be anxious, if you're like me, if you're a worrier, if you're a person that finds yourself always with a knot in your stomach, always with your hands sweating more than is natural and is often weird, you hear this commandment not to be anxious about anything. And what does it do? It makes you anxious. It makes you anxious. But you say, Lord, I'm so far from this. I'm so far from this. And yet what he is saying is that if we are to have the peace that surpasses all understanding, not only must there be this open-ended joy in our life, but there must be this open-handed, this open-handed faith and trust in God that eradicates the worry and anxiety from our lives. That if we are to have a peace that surpasses all understanding, that our hearts must be in a posture of rejoicing and our hearts must be in a posture of submission to the Lordship of God. And it's just as extreme as the first. He says, rejoice always. And then what does he say? Don't be anxious about anything. Like there's a lot of things I'm not anxious about, right? Like there's a lot of things I'm not worried about, but th to not be anxious about anything, anything. Like what about when my kids are sick? What about when my kids are sick? What about when, when surgery is on the calendar? What about when the numbers at the end of the month aren't adding up and the checkbook isn't reconciling? I don't have to, I'm not supposed to be anxious then either. I'm not supposed to be anxious then either. What about when my spouse isn't well? What, what about when my child is being bullied at school? I'm not supposed to be worried then. I'm not supposed to be anxious then. So that's exactly what he's calling us to. 
Do not be anxious when others disapprove of you. Do not be anxious when your family feels threatened. Do not be anxious when your children are sick. Do not be anxious when your marriage is hard. Do not feel anxious when no one seems interested in you. No, do not be anxious about anything. So we take the weight of these commands, the weight of these, these imperatives, and we fill it heavily upon us. And we might ask, how? How are we to do that? That's where the elaborations come in. That's where those two let your statements come from. That, that's what brings them to bear in our life. And I think what we'll see is that the first elaboration has to do with our relationships with one another. And the second elaboration has to do with our relationship with God. That it requires us living out those two great commandments to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love God with all of who we are, working in simultaneous union with one another if we are to know what it is to have a peace that surpasses all understanding. So when he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice, he follows that quickly by something that's strange. Like when I read it, it took me a long time to wrap my brain even around a little bit of what it means. He says, let your reasonableness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let, be, be famous for your reasonableness. Be legendary in your community for your reasonableness. Let everyone see you for your reasonableness. Now that's a, the word that's translated in the ESV as reasonableness is a very difficult word for us to get the exact meaning. And so you, you're, if you have a different translation than the ESV, it may be translated as gentle. gentle. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Or it may be translated as generous. Let your generosity be known to everyone. Or it may be translated as forbearance. Let your forbearance be known to everyone. Let your patience be known to everyone. And, and it's right in the middle of all of these words that we come to understand what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is what he's been talking about the whole time. He's talking about this conflict between Elodea and Syntyche. He's talking about the divisions and disagreements among the church. He's talking about the people being at odds with one another. And what he's wanting us to say is in, you are being unreasonable with each other. You are being uncharitable to be, toward each other. You are being unkind toward each other. You are policing one another in a way that is robbing the joy and draining the joy from the congregation and draining the joy from your own life that you have seen yourself as judge, jury, and executioner of everyone. And because you are, you are always placing motives in the hearts of others. You are always placing attitudes and thoughts in the minds of others, even though you can't see their motives. And even though you don't really know what's in their mind, you're always accusing in your own heart, your brother or your sister of being up to ill intent. You're always being malicious and mean spirited toward them. And it's draining the joy out of your life and sucking the life out of this congregation. Let me ask you, what's the reasonable response? What's the reasonable response for a Christian to another Christian? What's the reasonable response of a believer to a neighbor? Perhaps we think in our minds that their attitudes are impure. Perhaps we think their motives are impure, but what is a reasonable response? You see, we are those for whom the eternal Son of God has come for. We are those for whom he has emptied himself, humbled himself, been nailed to a borrowed, wretched, and cursed tree. We are those who he took the filth of our minds, 
the impurities of our lives, every wrong attitude, every grumbling word, every impure action, every mean-spirited, vindictive uh, reaction that we've ever had, Christ Jesus upon the cross took all of those from us and placed them upon himself. And he, being righteous, taking all of our filth and all of our wretchedness upon himself, has taken all of the right motive, all of the pure deeds, all of the perfect attitudes, all of the holy humility in his own life, and he's credited that to our account. And so when we look at the cross, when we look at who Christ is, what is the only right and reasonable response? It is that we would be humble as he, Christ is humble. It is that, that we would be lowly as Christ is lowly. It is that we would count others as more significant than ourselves. It is that we would put the interests of others ahead of our own interests. So that is the call for Paul to us, that we would humble ourselves before Christ and we would humble ourselves in our relationships with one another that then we might have peace. You see, to know the joy of Christ, you must ha live with the humility of Christ. To know the joy of Christ, you must live with the humility of Christ. For brothers and sisters, there is nothing more miserable than thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. To think that you deserve what you don't deserve. To think that you're entitled to what you're not entitled to. To think that you are better than someone who is receiving God's kindness when you aren't. To believe that your motives are pure when someone else's aren't. To believe that your attitude is okay when someone else is being policed by you. Oh, brothers and sisters, when you humble yourself, when you lay yourself down at the feet of Jesus' cross, then, then you can look up and you can celebrate with the wins of your brother and sister. You can believe the best about those who may bring hurt and pain into your life. You can then have joy in this house of God even when, even when it introduces difficulty to you. That if we are to know joy, we must know Christ's humility. The second let your statement that we see doesn't have so much to do with our relationships with one another as it does our relationship with God. He says that, we are not to be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So on one hand, he says our joy and peace have to do with our relationship with others. And now it is all about our relationship with God. And I want you to notice that the emphasis that the chief thrust of what Paul is saying is all centered upon the sovereign goodness of God. The sovereign goodness of God. He says, rejoice in whom? Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Who is the Lord? The Lord is the master of all. It is the kingship of God displayed for us. It is his power, his ruling authority. It is the name of the covenant at the very same time that God, though he is sovereign and though he is ruler, he is the one that has obligated himself to us and covenanted with us to protect us and to provide for us and to love us and to defend us and to deliver us. And so we see the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God coming together. What is the, the motivation that he gives even before he says, do not be anxious? He says, what? The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. It brings into our minds what it says in Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. That is, the Lord is here and he is our refuge and he is our hope and he is our rescuer and he is our deliverer and he is our redeemer. And at the same time, what does it call into our minds when he says the Lord is near? 
that he, though here among us, is fully coming one day in his power and in his glory. And he is going to set up a throne and rule over a new heaven and a new earth where his name will be proclaimed by the lips of every king and every army and every government, his sovereignty. And so we see here in the mind of Paul bringing the kingship, the sovereignty, the almightiness of God together with the goodness and the, and the eminence and the kindness and the mercy of God at the very same time so that we can see that God himself is superintending every event in our life. He's superintending every hardship that you face, every second of suffering that you know, every second of joy that you know, that the God who is there and the God who rules and the God who is good, he is bringing all of these things to bear according to his kind, wise and almighty will that he is able and he is willing. So how is it? How is it that we can rejoice always? How is it that we can rejoice regardless of what we face? It is by banking our hopes on the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty and not our circumstances. God's sovereignty and not our disappointments. God's sovereignty and not our worst case scenarios. It is to come to him in everything, every frantic worry, every imagined threat, every painful day, every betrayal, every heartbreak, every trepidation, in everything, letting your requests be known to God and trusting that the God who is able is the God who is willing. The one who is king is the God who is redeemer. You see, brothers and sisters, when you can trust God with everything, then you can rejoice through anything. When you can trust God with everything, then you can rejoice through anything. This morning, what is keeping you awake at night? What is it that's the trouble of your soul? Are you worried about your marriage? Can you trust God with it? Can you trust God with it? Then rest and rejoice. Are you worried about your kids? Are you worried about kids that are growing up and rebelling? Maybe adult children that haven't went the way of the Lord. Let me ask you, can you trust God with it? Can you trust God with it? Rejoice and rest. Are you worried about your job? Are you being passed over for the promotions? Does it appear that your company is playing out or your department may fizzle away? Can I ask you, can you trust God with it? Can you trust God with it? Then rejoice and rest. Are you struggling with your health? Is it like you just can't get better and you can't get well? Let me ask you, can you trust God with it? Can you trust God with it? Then let your requests be made known to God from a posture of gratitude that the God who is able is the God who is willing and he is superintending all of those things so they will work together for the glory of his kingdom and the joy of your life. Oh, whatever you are facing, if you can trust God with it, if you can trust God with it, you can rejoice today. You can rejoice today. That brings us to our final condition this morning. The final condition for peace is that we must spiral upward. We must spiral upward. Let me explain what I'm talking about. So if you'll remember way back when we started this series in August, I told you that this series was really born out of my own heart and my own struggle my own battle against anxiety, my own battle for happiness in my own life. And there has been no arrow in my quiver more lethal against my own anxiety than verses eight and nine of Philippians chapter four. 
There has been nothing that God has used in my own spiritual warfare than Philippians 8 and 9. Because I think what we see is Paul giving this real world practical advice of how he battles through these things in his life. That is, Paul is chained up in a jail. How does he battle discouragement? How does he battle anxiety? And I think that's what we see. You see, in my battle with anxiety, what I found out is that I was always imagining worst case scenarios. That, that one bad thing would happen to me in my day. One bad, one bad phone call would come, one bad text message, one, 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 bad, uh, one, one, one bad circumstance would pop up. And what it would do is it would start small and then it would spider web into a thousand to a million more worst case scenarios until ultimately I had cancer, my family was dying and we were all gonna be unemployed, right? And it would take these journeys, man. And I'm telling you, it's real. It's real and it hurt. And, and I would find myself feeling totally overwhelmed like I was, like I was drowning, like I, like I couldn't take a breath that was deep enough. And you know what I realized? Is that every time I go into a downward spiral, I've removed God from the equation. I've removed God from the equation. I've begun to think like God isn't there. I've begun to think and believe like God isn't trustworthy. I've begun to think and to believe like God isn't in control. I've begun to think and to believe like God doesn't love me or care about me or that I matter to him. I've begun to doubt the goodness of God, the character of God, the promises of God, the word of God. So this is what verses eight and nine show me. Let's read them together. Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are those moral ideals that, that we pursue, but only God fully possesses. And this is what he showed me. Rather than getting into these downward spirals, instead spiral upward spiral upward let your mind exhaust what you know about God let one small thought about God spider web into a million more thoughts about God let a small thought of his goodness go to reminders of the answers to your prayers to his presence over the generations to his faithfulness in your life let you go to how enormous God is how mighty God is how gracious God is how 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 powerful God is how thoughtful God is and let one thought build onto another until you are not having thousands or millions of worst case scenarios requiring you to become a doomsday prepper, but rather, 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 you are exhausting, exhausting, an inexhaustible source of almighty power and almighty goodness and almighty grace, almighty mercy. You come into a relationship with a person and they hurt you and they offend you or they, they bring criticism into your life. D don't Start spiraling downward and imagining it bigger than it is and placing motives in that person's heart. Instead, spiral upward into the sovereignty of God who has promised that the most hurtful thing that you will experience will sanctify you. That the only thing Satan can do to a believing Christian is to sanctify them through all of the hardships and all of the illnesses and all of the discouragements. You aren't feeling well? Don't spiral into a, a pit of self-pity spiral upward into knowing that you don't rest alone and you are ill alone. And one day, one day, regardless of what you experience, you will be made well. You will be made well. 
brothers and sisters, spiral upward. Whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is just, whatever is worthy of praise, find it, see God everywhere. And when you, when you become obsessed with the goodness of God, when you begin to meditate upon his power and kindness, you'll find that it resets your heart. It resets your heart. You see, the Christian that is always mindful of the sovereignty of God, the Christian that lives his life focused on the kindness of God, on the grace of God. Do you know what they have? Do you know what they experience? They experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. They know that the God of peace is with them. So now, now, now they are able to have an open-ended, unmitigated joy and an open-handed faith and confidence in the Almighty. Oh, brothers and sisters, spiral upward this morning. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.